because I believe science might offer an answer to the curse of the Bambino. Why someone took so long to hire that guy is beyond me. Anybody who's not tearing their team down right now and rebuilding it using your model, they're dinosaurs. One of the great things about money is it, it buys a lot of things. One of which is the luxury to disregard what baseball likes, doesn't like, what baseball thinks, doesn't think. It's a threatening, not just a way of doing business, but, it's, but in their minds, a threatening game. How can you not be romantic about baseball? All right, welcome to another Baseball Ops podcast. This is going to be a really special show for me because we have a, a legend here. I, I, sometimes calling people legends can cannot sound right, but really well-respected uh, doctor in the field, um, runs the research and development at ASMI, American Sports Medicine Institute, Dr. Glenn Fleissig. Did I, did I introduce you well, doctor? That was perfect, yeah. Very flattering, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Same here. I'm, I've read all your work. If I'm hoping in the beginning of this um, you can help me kind of introduce all the great work you've done, specifically in the field of... Um, you know, biomechanics or, or more into the medical side of, um, of your work. Um, why don't we just get it started with that? Why don't, let's just introduce everyone to you. Um, you kind of start from how you got into biomechanics. I think a lot of people that are going to be listening are going to also be interested how you got into this field and, and with ASMI. Can you sure. kind of give us a crash course? Yeah, sure. Uh, way back in the Stone Age, I went to MIT up in Boston and I was majoring in mechanical engineering. This was in the early 1980s, and I liked mechanical engineering, but honestly, I like sports, baseball in particular, And um, but I figured I wasn't good enough to be a pro baseball player, wasn't going to uh, be a sports medicine doctor. I figured I'd just play baseball or softball with my friends, watch t- baseball on TV, and, and have a day job doing mechanical engineering. Well, back in the 1980s, I want. I, I, I wandered into a lab at MIT called a biomechanics lab. Again, I'd never heard this word biomechanics before, and uh, it was kind of a, a new field. And in the biomechanics lab, they had people doing gait, which is like walking and things like that. And then they were studying a golf swing. And I thought, wait a second, you could put mechanical engineering into studying sports. And so I got involved in that there. And uh, after that, I asked the professor there, uh, where are jobs in biomechanics, sports biomechanics? And he laughed. I remember him laughing, even though it was 35 years ago. And um, he said, there are no jobs in sports biomechanics. <laughs> and uh, But uh, he knew someone at the United States Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And so I did an internship there. So internships are always a good idea for advancing your careers, your career. And I went out there. And from there, I met a, uh, a the research director there named Dr. Chuck Dillman, who was a really a, a, a father of the field of biomechanics. And uh, I told him I liked baseball and I was doing well in my internship. And he, he said there was an up-and-coming young doctor named Dr. Jim Andrews. He's a, a southerner. He lives in, in Georgia at the time. And uh, so he introduced me. And I uh, spoke to Dr. Andrews, 1984. Uh, and uh, and we hit it off. And... Um, and uh, but he wasn't ready to start his own place, Dr. Andrews, at that point. He was still in, uh, at another center. But uh, a couple years later, 1987, Dr. Andrews called me and said he's ready. And I was ready, and I dropped what I was doing. And I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, which I probably didn't even know where it was on the map at that point. <laughs> and um, 
and uh, but opportunity knocked, and the rest is history. Dr. Andrews and I uh, and others uh, have formed Doc, uh, American Sports Medicine Institute in 1987. Uh, in fact, Dr. Andrews formed two companies, his medical practice and ASMI, and uh, both are doing well, and he's still doing well. Uh, the medical practice is, as you would think, it, they treat surgeries, do surgeries and other types of treatment. But um, ASMI is a nonprofit research and education institute, and we set it up to understand and prevent injuries in sports. A big thing we do, Brent, is biomechanics. And with biomechanics, as I was saying, my background, is studying human motion using cameras and understanding the body, but also understanding the laws of physics. So that's a right. little brief. Uh, that was perfect. And, and, and that's what your PhD is in? Is it in specifically in biomechanics? So, yeah, so I, I actually came to ASMI, uh, again, um, after my Olympic experience, I had a, a bachelor's degree from MIT, and I was in, after the Olympics, I went to go get a, a master's degree in biomedical engineering. I was really kind of into this uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. But then uh, out of the blue, Dr. Andrews called me two or three years later. I was, this is before internet and all that stuff, so he... Right. I guess he kept my phone number on a piece of paper or something. And, uh, and two or three years later, he called me and said, are we ready? And, I, and I'm like, I'm ready. And I, I essentially walked away from my master's program at uh, Wash U. And I came over here to Birmingham. And um, I kept in contact with the Wash U people. And I was almost done. I finished that remotely. Um, and then I got my PhD here in Birmingham at UAB yeah. uh, in biomedical engineering. Uh, biomechanics specialty. So uh, essentially, uh, you know, sometimes I guess the lesson learned is um, when opportunity knocks and you, and you're uh, confident in yourself and uh, and you do a good job, you do, you go for it, and sometimes things work out well. And you run into an icon like Dr. Angie's, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, uh, he, he wasn't an icon. <laughs> he was <laughs> he was an icon to be. You know, right? He was. I got the I got to run into him at the injuries and base baseball course a couple years ago that you guys do and it was awesome and where does he get all his fire from i mean that guy he's he's impressive <laughs> oh definitely definitely he so I, i've been uh blessed to uh, fortunate to work with a couple of real leaders dr chuck dillman who i said in biomechanics and dr james andrews um you know from the beginning again i was in my 20s and he was in his 40s but he has such a respect for all his co-workers including me and he's such a team player and such a uh imaginative thinker. I mean, he's a great surgeon because of, of how he views the problem, whether it's the surgery or the big picture of the person. And uh, and the other thing he's always done is his effort is, you know, the expression 110%. Uh, I mean, that that's him. So, uh, you know, doctors cover sidelines and things like that, cover uh, games and um, work in the with the trainers and all that stuff. And uh, he's in his 70s, Dr. Andrews, and he's still outworks everyone else around him and, and and again it was amazing to watch him when he was in his 40s and 50s starting out here he would have essentially about four uh, fellows which are young doctors in training who were helping him with four different surgery cases at a time and he would go from one to another and essentially be doing four surgeries at the same time then when the day was over he'd talk to the trainer from some professional baseball or football team and then on friday go fly to a washington redskins game or a, on Saturday an Alabama football game he, he just it's, it's unbelievable he is he's otherworldly I don't think he's from this world <laughs> yeah. well 
let's let's that's awesome and and i think you really are one of the pioneers of biomechanics like you said when you came in you, you really it wasn't really a popular thing um uh, i mean i'm sure I, I mean i don't even know is there actually a is there a phd in biomechanics now because like you said you got yours in and, biomedical engineering right. i got mine yeah uh so yeah so biomechanics is an interesting field because it's kind of biology and mechanics so there are different ways to get there uh, you, you could uh, take a more of an engineering approach, which is what I did, or you could take a more of an exercise science approach. So there, different schools have different types of programs, whether it's called biomechanics or biomedical engineering or kinesiology or exercise science. So there are different ways to get there, and then people have different strengths, whether it's more the engineering and math or more the human body understanding. Uh, if you really want to be an expert of it, you need to understand both. I think great point. I'm I'm getting my master's in kinesiology right now, and I want to go even more in depth into biomechanics. It's really what I'm passionate about. That's why I've been led to you. I've read every study I could find, and you're on a lot of them. Um, but I think I, I have more of the kinesiology, uh, the body perspective of biomechanics. But you're right. Like There's a very uh, mathematical engineering side of it as well and would you say is that what where your perspective comes from or would you say both yeah you know no one's perfect but i i and uh so you, you're probably stronger at one than the other and i'm, I'm probably the opposite of you right. i'm stronger in the engineering and the math and the science and then i learned as much about the human body biology as i could to complement that whereas you're probably coming from the other side and our asmi team we try to uh, have both types because um Honestly, our, the, our best biomechanics comes with our, our, our brilliant minds we have here working on the science and the engineering, but also working with some of the top doctors like Dr. Andrews and, and Dr. Dugas and Kane and physical therapists like Kevin Wilk and also some of the, the coaches. Uh, essentially, Brent, when we see a baseball player uh, and we see he's getting hurt, he's hurting his elbow, uh, I might see well, look at the physics. Look, look at that, how he's passing the energy up. And the doctor might say, well, I can just imagine the ulnar collateral ligament and the strain on that. And the pitching coach is, well, look, he's stepping across his foot. So these are all different words or different viewpoints, but looking at the same person. And really the um, success of sports biomechanics is the ability to put together the different perspectives on the, on the person. Uh, now I'm just really fascinated by what we can do here. I, I, cause I think I'm going to be coming from you to you from the body with a lot of my questions. And I'm really intrigued to get the, this other perspective, which I know it's so valuable physics and the math of all this is incredibly valuable. Like, I mean, not trying to get too complicated, but like inverse kinetics, like really almost being able to define energy flow through the body, I think is like the ultimate perspective of really truly understanding how biomechanics work would would that be uh, off would that be correct or what would you yeah, say exactly exactly so my objective of the rest of this uh, podcast is for you to ask uh, very practical questions and for me to give answers with mathematical equations yes. that are too complicated to understand <laughs> that would be awesome <laughs> but um but but seriously what you're saying is correct um there's what's called dynamics and then there's inverse dynamics or inverse kinetics yeah. and uh, dynamics uh means uh, you move your body this way, and and uh, you you apply force, 
and this is how you move your body from that. Of course, that's how we move. We apply a force on our joints and we move. Inverse dynamics or inverse kinetics for your listeners or viewers is um, is the opposite. You observe the motion and then you go back and calculate what kind of forces must have been created to make that motion. Right, because a slight change in you know, hip position or elbow position will change the pattern of, of forces all the way around the body, correct? Correct, correct. And, and again... If we had, uh, if we studied biomechanics and baseball players by sticking little force sensors inside their elbow and shoulder and joints, then we would have forward dynamics, meaning we'd be measuring the forces directly. But we do inverse dynamics, which means we have cameras. We don't stick forces in their joints. We have cameras. This is how biomechanics works typically. And you see, here's how they moved. And you say, well, to move the arm there, you must apply so much force at your elbow or shoulder. Well, let's really attack the pitching delivery. Most of my audience is pitching here, so let's let's go right at it. I, and you know, I, I just like to start where I feel the conventional wisdom wants to go, and then I try to like re- reset the collective perspective from that position. So, you know, conventionally, we over the years we've gravitated to the arm first. Do you find that to be a problem if you're truly going to understand the biomechanics of, say, a pitching delivery? Is if you gravitate right to the arm first? Uh, I need you to uh, clarify a little. What, what do you mean the arm first? I guess when you're going right to how the, the arm action, uh, the arm speeds, the arm torques, like to, to really define the pitching delivery, is it a mistake to start first understanding the arm before understanding any other aspect or any other part of the body? Okay, I got you. Uh, yes, it is. And I, I know you're, it's a leading question because you, you know so also. Um, I, I wish I could say that the key to successful pitching, I want to define successful pitching as good performance, but also safe and, and not getting hurt, okay? But it would be easy to, if it would be great if good pitching biomechanics could be summed up in one thing, you know, bend your elbow like this or move your shoulder. But unfortunately, the body's much more complicated than that, and it's a, a coordinated, it's, it's a coordinated sequence of motions. So it's, the key is not the elbow. The key is not the shoulder. The key is not the hip or the knee. Unfortunately, the key is all those pieces, the, the kinetic chain, it's all those pieces put together. And to say the key is just this one piece is um, is not going to work. You have to look at all the pieces together. And and you know what? I think you caught me right in the beginning. I'm glad you did. I'm going to apologize. A lot of my questions are going to be leading questions. Yeah, no, no problem. No problem. It sounds and, good. And I think that's why I'm, I'm I'm happy to have you here because, of course, I have a perspective. I did this. I right. played professionally and tore my rotator cuff and, and rebuilt it and then studied my butt off. And obviously, I do have a perspective in my opinion and my kind of method. And I love challenging it. And ultimately, that's why I'm excited because I think you're going to really help challenge it and, and help me you know, see it completely and, and, and try not to be like pigeonholed in anything. Um, so going forward, obviously, that's probably where I'm going to be coming from, but I'm enjoying this. Um, so when we say kinetic chain, um, I'm a big believer in kinetic chain, but you, you still kind of hear that like this is a theory, like there, there might be another way to look at, at biomechanics. Is there another way to look at biomechanics outside of the kinetic chain? Well, uh, no. Uh, well, uh, there could be. The kinetic chain is definitely real. Coordination is definitely real. Uh, but uh, we, I cannot say there's only one proper way to pitch. Okay, just like uh, people who were um, 
doing uh, high jumps uh, back in the 1960s said the way to do it is jump belly down. And then uh, this guy, Fo- Dick Fosbury, came along and, and did a Fosbury flop and did back down. So it wasn't just one way. This guy found a better way. And, and likewise, more recently, in um, downhill skiing, for instance, uh, I mean ski jump, uh, it used to be you, you did the jump and you pull your the, t- the tips of your skis up parallel uh, towards your nose. But now they do it with a, 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 a V shape. And so someone figured out a better way. So can, is there a better way of pitching than what I'm going to describe? There might be. But uh, well, but I, I, I don't know if there is. I doubt it. Uh, I could tell you when I'm going to explain to you what the connect chain is. Uh, I'm not just making it up. I, like we said, I've done this for 30 years. And I've been fortunate enough to test thousands and thousands of baseball pitchers in our biomechanics lab with little markers on them and quantifying their motion from, I think, about 10 Cy Young Award winners and hundreds or hundreds and hundreds of pro pitchers. So what I, I can tell you is I could tell you how the best pitchers pitch. I can't tell you if there's, a, in my imagination, a better way, but I doubt it. And I could say the proper way to pitch based on the best pitchers who have ever pitched is a certain way. That being said, Brent, if you want, I'd, I'd like to describe a little bit what yeah, the proper please mechanics do. are. Please do. Okay. I mean, I'm looking at this as being educational for everyone listening. Sure. So um, top to bottom, we actually uh, look at the mechanics in the order things happen. So we don't jump right to the arm. We, uh, we start with the legs. And so whether it's a wind-up or a stretch position, we uh, – we study when the uh, front knee, let's just assume in this uh, discussion that the pitcher is right-handed. And so when he brings his left knee up to the maximum knee height point he's going to do, we look to see if he's balanced and consistent pitch to pitch. And then a, a very key moment for us is the instant that the front foot, the left foot in this case, uh, touches the rubber, I mean, touches the mound and lands. Um, we call this the instant of foot contact. And honestly, People are not getting hurt at the incident of foot contact, but everyone has a front foot contact, so it's an excellent checkpoint just to see if things are timed. And so at the time of front foot contact, whether it's your heel or your your toe or flat foot, when your front foot first hits the mound and starts to uh, put the weight back on the mound, uh, we, we do a checkpoint to see if your hips have started to rotate, so your belly button is starting to face home plate, uh, but keeping your shoulders closed so that your two shoulders are essentially, and your two shoulders and your, and your front el- and front hand are essentially in line with the target, if that makes sense. At the same time, we look at the throwing hand, the right hand in this case, and see if it's rotated up and if it's in sync with the body and not ahead of the game or behind the game. And so some of the measurements we look at, Brent, at the time of front foot contact is that the back arm should be abducted, meaning the the right the right shoulder armpit angle should be about 90 degrees, meaning your right elbow should be about the height of an imaginary line through your two shoulders. And just as importantly, the, the, the hand, the right hand holding the ball should be have externally rotated up. In other words, if your front foot, your left foot lands, but your hand is still lower than your elbow, and your right hand is lower than your right elbow, then you're late. If, on the other hand, your uh, your right forearm is vertical before your foot lands, then your arm is early. Your arm is 
out of sync again, but too early compared to the body. So again, at the time of front foot contact, a good visual checkpoint is a, a right-handed pitcher uh, should be essentially showing the ball to the shortstop, or if we still have a conventional shortstop position. <laughs> and, um, and likewise, a lefty, if you're playing traditional defense, he would be showing the baseball to the second baseman. Not, not to second base, but to the second baseman. Uh, that's a, an important checkpoint. Again, people don't really get hurt there, but things go out of whack if they're not good at that point. From that point, in h- super high-speed video, we see a sequence of motions where the pitcher catches his weight on that front foot, uh, and the uh, left knee would bend a little, but then it, it, it catches and stops bending and starts to straighten it out. That's why it's important to have strong legs. And at the same time, uh, the pelvis the hips continue to rotate so the belly button is facing the batter and then and then the upper trunk rotates a little delay there so you're using your trunk and while the trunk's going forward the arm continues to go backwards so you get this uh you know you've seen these photographs of these pitchers in this arm cocked position where their trunk their chest is facing home plate but their arm is cocked back so far that essentially the palm is up to the sky facing the sky and that's what we call the maximum external rotation external rotation of the shoulder um, and and we we take a lot of measurements at that point to make sure that the arm has rotated back enough uh, as, as elite pitchers that the elbow is bent the right amount and then from that moment you straighten your elbow in other words elbow extension you flip your shoulder forward uh, that's called shoulder internal rotation velocity and uh, you let go of the ball. And you know what, Brent? Um, no one's mechanics after they let go of the ball is going to affect the pitch, right. but it's going to affect their ability to pitch again. Right. So you need, good, you need good mechanics, yes, as you're saying, to decelerate. So after releasing the ball, just like we had a whole kinetic chain from the leg up to the arm to build up energy, you need a, a proper kinetic chain from the arm back down to the legs to dissipate the energy. And you have the essentially a reverse sequence where the arm has to continue its motion then the upper trunk and the and the hips everything gets into it and it has a follow through perfect so a lot of that would be defined as kinematics as opposed to kinetics is that correct that's correct kinematics is the uh, the word for motions and kinetics is the word to describe uh, how you made those motions like the forces and torques that created those motions so can we define kinetics in a similar sequence can we is it proper to say we can start with ground force and then there's multiplying forces through, say, the stretch shortening cycle through the body? Or is there, is there a certain way to define the kinetics in a similar sequence? It's an interesting question. We've had debates and discussions about this in the biomechanics community. And uh, one of our favorite terms in biomechanics is the kinetic chain. But a, a recent conversation by the International Society of Biomechanics on our chat line is people have different definitions of it, okay? Right. So everyone says kinetic chain is important, and then some people, you know, obviously on these online chats, everyone kind of gets off on a tangent, but some people say it's kinetic chain, and some people say maybe we should call it a kinematic chain right. because you're really talking about the sequence of the kinematics or the motions. And then someone else says, no, 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 it should be kinetic chain. And then someone says whether it's throwing a baseball or swinging a golf club is a proper mechanics does is it you do this motion then this motion then this motion or you do this force this force this force or you pass up and do this energy this energy this energy so 
um, our approach at ASMI has been the the sequence of the uh, mechanics and specifically the sequence of the velocities of the different body parts, and that's how we've done it. Uh, I actually like that approach because it's it's what you see. Mm-hmm. You can see how you move your body. But other people, I think it's equally valid, talk about the kinetic chain as a sequence of energy transfers or a sequence of forces and torques, but that's not been the approach we've done. Is there, do, do you have an opinion on the effects of ground force on the pitching deliver, delivery? Sure, sure. There's, um, there's some research on that as well. And um, it's a long debate, uh, precedes me, uh, about whether a pitcher uh, pushes off the rubber or, or falls, has a, a controlled fall from the rubber to the front uh, foot. There have been some uh, limited number of studies that have quantified or measured the, uh, the force pushing off the rubber and the force landing. And uh, it's kind of, it has been kind of inconclusive to me in my observation, or it's been, uh, it seems that you could do it a couple of different ways. But I, I honestly think it's like a hybrid. You don't just have a fall, you do have a, a push but it's not a most pitchers don't do a crazy push it's kind of a a controlled fall from gravity of your front side of your leg front side of your body tipping forward but you do push to some extent off the back foot yeah they're one of my favorite studies i i I use it all the time it just when i heard this it just really made sense to me and and to find the to me the kinetic sequencing and the importance of it um, I'm sure you've heard it. You might have been in the study. I don't know. Kib, you know the Kibler and Chandler. Have you, do you have you worked with them? Sure, sure. I know Ben Kibler. He's excellent. And, yeah. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Chandler. Yeah. Well, uh, they calculated. Study. They calculated this. I'm going to read it from their study. Calculated that a 20% decrease in kinetic energy delivered from the hip and trunk to the arm requires a 34% increase in the rotational velocity of the shoulder to impart the same amount of force to the hand. Do you believe – how do you perceive totally, that? I, t- I totally believe that. I totally believe that. There, there are two things happening here. One is uh, – just listening to you quote that. Uh, one is that, uh, yes, if, you, if you're missing energy from one part of the chain, then up the chain you have to um, overdo it. And, yeah, overcompensate. And that's, that's honestly uh, the key factor we're trying to prevent. Two pitchers could pitch 90 miles per hour, but one guy could be doing it just with his arm. And the other person's transferring the energy up. And like you just said in that study, if you don't, if the lower parts or the initial parts uh, don't do their part, then the other parts have to do more. The other thing of interest is um, not only are you passing up energy and building upon it, but the body parts are getting smaller. So the amount of energy, well, the, let's say the angular velocity of the hip rotation, pelvis rotation, and upper trunk rotation are much less than the angular velocities at the shoulder and elbow because you're passing up energy but you have large body parts passing up energy which is, is more mass and less velocity but then once you get to the arm you have uh, smaller body parts you have less mass and then it will translate that energy into more velocity so it, it works out nicely that um, that the velocities get bigger because the parts are getting smaller yeah, and and to me that really paints the picture. I believe to to efficiencies and and being able to really, because I'm in a position where I'm trying to help kids increase performance, but because I was a rotator cuff 
victim. I don't want to ever push them into injury. So this, I, I, this is where I've gravitated to was kinetic energy and trying to get the lower extremities to contribute more because to me it's, it's almost worth twice of what I'm going to create in the upper extremities. And just a lot of the studies show the more we delay the trunk, um, the more forward trunk we get, we, we can actually and bring more energy to the ball and it can reduce stress on the arm in the process. Do you, do you believe that's possible in the kinetic chain that we can actually increase velocity on the ball and, and reduce stress or not exaggerate stress in the arm. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I see it all the time here. But uh, but I also want to say there are limits to this. So uh, I think it, if you do it properly and have the proper motions of your hips and your trunk and your legs be, before that and pass up the energy properly to your arms and leg to your arm, you can uh, avoid the situation where you – demanding too much of your arm. That being said, you can't always take it to the next step. You can't always say, well, what if my hips go twice the speed or, or twice as early? Um, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and, and so in mo most of the variables we see that uh, whether it's shoulder external rotation angle or, uh, or timing of the upper trunk rotation, there's a proper range and doing too little is bad, but also doing too much is bad or doesn't help right well it's like it's like the whip analogy like there has to be sequencing the, the, the sequencing the timing, or what's it's called uh the, the speed phenomenon like you, the previous segment well the, the the next segment can't start until the previous segment has peaked to pro properly accelerate energy right right can't right could just start a little bit but that that's that's the kinetic chain principle as i as I believe it and understand it exactly, and, and you know, so a couple of analogies are this. Look, if you look at the human body, the picture, and I am fortunate to watch it in super slow motion, and I could see these different things, and you can actually see uh, the different parts of the body taking their turns and going. Um, some other things that we could all see is uh, like a whip. We're talking about a whip, but if you have a big bull whip or something like that, you can see the handle moves a certain speed, and then, uh, well, if you watch it in slow motion. The handle moves a certain speed, and then the middle part of the whip uh, goes back and, and whips forward, and then the upper part. And not only that, but the whip is getting smaller and lighter, mm -hmm. uh, thinner, as you go towards the tip. And uh, like I'm saying, the body parts are getting smaller. That's one analogy I like to use. Another analogy I like to use is, um, is uh, let's say, uh, ice skating or rollerblading, uh, where, uh, let's say, a bunch of seven friends are, are skating around the rink and want to do the whip. Uh, when the guy running the rink isn't watching <laughs> or whatever, yeah. and um, they all hold hands, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and they don't all push at the same time. The, they all are skating, and then the first kid uh, f pushes his energy into his hands of holding the second kid who gets the energy, and when he feels just is just right, he passes on and adds his energy into his other arm to the next kid going down the chain. Honestly, that that analogy works well also because if you did it, Ideal, optimally, you have the biggest kid uh, at the beginning, and then you smaller and smaller kids until the last kid who you want to whip is the smallest kid, and that that's an and, optimal but, connect chain. And in great analogy, but tell me if I'm wrong. I, it's it's interesting how we always do this. We always find analogies for throwing that are similar or they're angular, they're rotational movements. 
And you can, as far as in physics, it almost works the same way even in an, if there is no rotation. Meaning there's there a great little experiment they've been doing on YouTube recently. You might have seen it where they're showing how a supernova explodes. And they'll take a, a really big bouncy ball and then a smaller bouncy ball and then like a golf ball. And they'll stack them on top of each other and they'll drop them simultaneously. And the energy from the big ball pushes through the middle, the smaller ball, and then all the way to the golf ball. And the golf ball goes, you know, explodes like 50 feet in the air. But then if you just drop the golf ball, you, you, you know, you maybe goes 10 feet up. So it, yeah. it shows how energy can multiply also without an angular movement. Would, would that be correct? Well, you have a lot of interesting concepts there, Brent. And I'd like you to actually send me that video. I'd like to uh, see that, that supernova thing. Um, but, uh, energy can uh, can multiply and, and can build upon it. Um, you have certain limitations in your body because of how physiology, how muscles and ligaments and tendons and how the tissues work. You have fast twitch and slow twitch, and they have certain elasticity and limits. But uh, a place in baseball where what you're saying is really evident is in uh is in uh non-wood bats and metal bats and balls right uh, i'm also i serve on the usa baseball uh bat committee well i serve on the usa baseball medical and safety committee actually i'm the chairman of it but um um we uh, have bat regulations for uh uh for metal bats and um or non-wood bats as we call them and uh if you know and your listeners about 15 years ago uh, college baseball was essentially um, out of control as far as the scores of the games and uh, typical games in the World Series or elsewhere would it be like 15 to 10 and um, uh, or 20 or 18 to 12 or whatever and uh, the bats were a little too souped up right. okay and um, just talking about elasticity uh, without manipulating the ball much you could manipulate a non-wood bat a lot to have like a elasticity and a spring-like motion. What we've done now in, in USA Baseball and, and in, in NCAA College Baseball is we've made uh, regulations for the performance of the bats that are illegal that they could only be um, – there's a whole testing procedure where you fire these baseballs in an air cannon off the bats and they could only bounce off a certain amount to be more wood-like. Right. But it's just an example that um, you could actually – add on more energy than you would anticipate right. by, by the combination of materials. Well, I, I, I look at it in the pitching delivery as far as in kin, the kinematics of the, this energy production. We can do it in two ways. We can create um, rotational movements like the pelvis rotation, the trunk rotation, but then we have extension movements like leg extension, uh, mainly, I mean, more in the leg extension, some in the arm extension, but I'd say probably more force generated in the in the leg extension. But the point is, is that's a that's going to create energy as well. So, can can we break down the pitching delivery in those two movements, an angular movement and say a linear movement, a push towards the, the yeah. target? Yeah, definitely. This is, conventionally, as your listeners, the coaches will know, in baseball, there's often talk about uh, uh, the building up the energy and the pitching motion in the linear direction and then there's the uh, rotational or, or angular and and how people usually view this is the linear is if you are again a right-handed pitcher but you're looking at him from the third base view you're looking at how much things am i seeing is he tilting his trunk forward is he bending his knee what do i see from this side view or sagittal view 
as we say, that would be called the linear. And the angular would almost be like the bird's eye view from overhead, how much things are rotating about the spine and uh, how, how did that contribute. The truth is, as we know, um, we want the baseball to have linear velocity, to go straight, but nothing on your body moves like that. There's no um, spring or anything. There's no right. linear thing. Your body is just a bunch of joints, angles. Well, even even on your hips and your back, there are a bunch of bones and angles. So it's tricky and it's, it's very impressive. It's beautiful. How do we get the most velocity, linear velocity, from a sequence of angular rotations and motion? So even the ones you're, you're talking about being linear, like the front knee or, or tilting the trunk, it's an angle, but it's, it's just it's still rotating. That yeah. plane. It's just in that plane. Well, and your body yeah. only moves in angles. But that being said, I do think there are some pitchers who are relying more on this, let's say, linear drive, which is a, like a longer stride or straightening their front knee or, right. or, or more extension forward. And there are other pitchers who are more rotational right. from the overhead view. But I do want to point out that all those things are angles. And I, I, I do think that the... Um, the guy who's more rotational, uh, he might be better suited for being more of a sidearm pitcher. And the uh, one who's more, less, as you're calling, linear, uh, that's over more the, the typical characteristics of the over-the-top pitcher. And honestly, most pitchers are three-quarter arm slot, and they're a combination of utilizing both. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're all versions of both. And, and what I try to do, because in optimizing performance, what would be your opinion on this? I'm trying to help them optimize... And you're right. I'm not talking because if we're talking anatomically, each joint rotates on the anatomical plane, so sagittal, frontal. But I'm okay now that we clarified. I'm okay with yeah. us, you in our conversation. Linear is that. Uh, I guess, but you're right. I'm saying forward thing and angular right. is what it looks like from the exactly. From I guess I'm viewer. saying okay. linear is in momentum outside of the body. Where's the where's the energy going? And rotational would be, you know, more I guess centrifugal force applying yes. the movement, but. What I try to do, my perspective in enhancing performance is I try to help them optimize both. So if I see a kid who's, like you said, very rotational, they're not going to have the long stride, the trunk's not going to want to move forward much, I try to teach them or help them optimize a more linear movement to, to add to that. Because specifically when I measure them and they, they'll have like elite rotational measurements and they'll have extremely poor, say, linear measurements, would you say that's a good perspective to try to help these athletes optimize and kind of get a good combination of linear to rotational yes. energy? Yes. Again, based on all the uh, pro pitchers I've seen, the best are using both. And the other problem that uh, I know you're aware of is if a guy is all rotational, um, he could have trouble with his accuracy, his control. Right. He, he throws inside and outside on pitchers, on batters because he releases too early or too late and, 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 um, yeah, it's not the and, and, ideal. And I think, and I think it affects precision or, or accuracy strictly in the fact of if, say, if I have a gun and I'm running at some something that I'm shooting, it'd be easier to hit my target as opposed to if I'm running away from it, right? Would that I think be a good so. I don't, sh- no? I, don't sh- I don't shoot people, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not shooting. Really, let's say shoot a tree, right? <laughs> okay, okay, sure. <laughs> a target. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, really, your analogy, what I'd say is, um, I think it's easier to. Uh, shoot that tree if you're running towards it and just pushing your hand forward and backward than if you're just swinging it left to right then uh, that that's more like a the angular pitcher right uh, it'd be hard to hit the 
the tree if you swing your arm left <laughs> to right. Yeah. But so how about this? How about with injury? Don't you? I believe pitchers that are more predominantly rotational, specifically very obviously aggressive at high intent in in rotation, typically have more of the arm injuries because typically, like I find, the arm path is angulate. I mean, you get into hyperangulation more if you're extremely rotational than if you're trying to move more linear more towards the target what what would be your opinion on that yeah as you you said i I don't really think you're one or the other i think you're just trying to do it all right we recently wrote a paper uh uh my colleague was the first author uh, e-s-c-a-m-i-l-l-a uh comparing pro pitchers pro pitchers who were overhand uh over the top three quarters and sidearm and there were a lot more similarities than differences uh among those three groups um we quantified some differences i don't have it it's too hard to explain right on this podcast but um but there were essentially there were more similarities and differences for instance one similarity is uh all the pitchers regardless of if you're sidearm or over the top you still have to keep your throwing shoulder abducted about 90 degrees so what that tells us is there are different ways to move your trunk and succeed but there's essentially only one way the shoulder can work, which is with that 90 degree abduction, because essentially that's how the joint is built. And, and do you believe? I think I learned hyperangulation from Job, Doctor Job. He he credited a lot of the arm injury to that that lag, that arm drag, the arm pulling, specifically yeah. the elbow behind the scapular plane. Do you do you believe it's as dangerous as he made it sound? Yeah. So. Uh, Successful pitchers are on the edge. They are getting the best performance, but they're close to injury. And, and that's where they sit, and that's where the pro athletes are. And unfortunately, that's why so many are getting hurt, even at high school level, because uh, they're on that edge and some of them tip over. And um, so we have found in our science that um, the best pitchers have more shoulder external rotation and um, – and they also have a good amount of what we call horizontal abduction, which I think is what you're referring to, which is essentially pinching your right. elbows behind your back. Um, and they have a good amount of that. If you have too much horizontal abduction, pinching your elbow behind your back, you're going to put too much stress and potential tear on the front of your shoulder. Likewise, um, you want to have a lot of external rotation where I talked about the palm facing up and rotating the arm back. Uh, and, and the more is better for velocity, but too much, you're going to have shoulder injury. One of the injuries we see is what's called internal impingement, which is where the ro- rotator cuff on the back of the shoulder gets pinched in the shoulder joint because you rotated it back so far and essentially squished it in there. So I, I don't know. I, I, the elite pitchers have to have a lot of shoulder ex- shoulder rotation in particular, and uh, but if you uh, do some things to try to force it, you're really going down the road of increased chance of injury. Let me give you a couple of examples. I just said the more shoulder external rotation you have, the more velocity you'll have. And so then listeners here or elsewhere say, okay, well, whoever this kid is, I'm going to work on him to get more shoulder external rotation. Well, sometimes you have as much as you can have and and, and you got it. That's, that's it. Accept it. But um, sometimes a, a pitcher wasn't really a throwing athlete growing up, and he doesn't have as much external rotation. It, it turns out it's a developmental thing. And uh, you, you said, Brent, you said you played uh, ball. Um, 
you probably uh, have more ex- – are you right-handed? Yes. You probably have more external rotation on your right shoulder than your left shoulder, right. and you probably have more internal rotation on your left shoulder than right shoulder. Right. And what that means is uh, a throwing athlete has a natural development where they have more ability to rotate their throwing arm back. That being said, if you take a soccer player who's 18 years old and try to force the issue, um, you're just going to tear things. The bones have grown a certain way in the soft tissue. Another thing uh, we are um, interested in and concerned about at the same time is weighted baseballs. We've done a couple of studies both in the biomechanics lab and in the, uh, and in the field, and we found out that uh, these weighted baseball programs throwing – you know, a standard baseball is five ounces, but throwing – four-ounce, three-ounce underweight baseballs and heavier baseballs, six, seven, one-pound, two-pound balls, that um, we found that it does change the mechanics. You, you don't throw a one-pound ball with the same mechanics as a five-ounce ball. But even the um, smaller differences, we found measurable differences in the mechanics. Not a bad thing, but measurable differences. And we also found in our training study that uh, pitchers who pitch with high school pitchers in this case, pitch with a weighted ball training program, gain ball velocity in a short amount of time. We also found that they gained shoulder external rotation, not during pitching, but in a physical exam. They gained shoulder external rotation in this six-week training program. And we also found they had an increased risk of, of injury. So what I'm saying is there are some things you could do um, there's a proper training, whether it's weighted baseballs or just good mechanics or strength and conditioning that optimize an athlete. But if you overdo it, push the body past its natural point, uh, you'll have good velocity for like a day <laughs> right. and then you'll be hurt. Well, I'm glad you bring up the weighted balls. My, my issue, I've never been a fan of it. I used it when I was young and it, and it was ironic. I wound up getting seriously hurt. That was before my tore my rotator cuff, but I was doing that and a lot of extreme throwing. My my thing on it is, if I'm as a coach or as a biomechanics um, analyst or or, or or using a kinetic chain approach to train a an athlete, timing is a big part of the equation. And when you use a weighted object outside of the weight that they're going to be, you know, accustomed to or having to throw every day, you're 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 trying to get the effects of loading with you know overload underload is an effective approach like you said it does gain you do gain velocity not everyone but a lot but if you're trying to use the effects of loading and and it's going to on the bad side or the negative side affect timing negatively affect timing then is that really a good training modality yeah so i want to loop in besides weighted baseball program throwing i want to loop in long toss as well and these are two common uh uh, throwing training programs. Um, and, uh, uh, I think they both have a value. Okay. Uh, uh, there are two types of baseball pitchers. There are the healthy guys trying to get better or stay healthy. And then there are the guys who were hurt trying to make it back. So some of the answers for what you should be doing are different for sure for the rehab setting or the healthy guy. But, um, just, just on the healthy guy, let's say, um, or a team of healthy pitchers, I, I think, you could succeed, or, or, or in your center, Brent, I think you could succeed with weighted balls, you can su- succeed with long toss, but you could also succeed without them. So there's, there's science and there's art. And the science is I've measured and what happens when you do these different throws. And the art is trying to 
put together a program, either individualized or for a team, that works. Now, that being said, you just put up the point that throwing a four-ounce baseball or seven-ounce baseball is not the exact same thing as throwing a five-ounce baseball. Or, or, or flat-ground throws are not the exact same thing as pitching. I, I do want to say on record, the best exercise for full-effort pitching is full-effort pitching. Right. However, I do also want to say on record that you can't do that all day. <laughs> right. And that's the big problem and why there's so many injuries today is that uh, the, the amount of full-effort pitching com- and during competition is is too much for the body to handle. So here you have a pitcher. You want to be as good as you can. And I'm saying that the best exercise for pitching is pitching. It's the exact same thing. But you can't put the demands on your body, your muscles, your ligaments, your tendons to, to keep doing the same thing in the same motion at the same velocity again and again. And that's how you get overuse injury. So I think the value of... Um, Weighted balls and long toss and flat ground throws are twofold. One of them is essentially to give your muscles and ligaments and tendons a little break. They're 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 strengthening, but they're they're in a slightly different position. I think there's a, a anatomical physiological advantage to that. The other advantage of doing something besides pitching is, from an athletic point of view, a proprioception point of view. You want the athlete to understand his body as much as possible, as well as possible. And um, so you have all sorts of drills, whether it's the balance of standing on one leg or uh, trying to uh, throw a heavier ball or lighter ball into a strike zone. Um, You have to – your body has to learn and adapt. And I think there's a real value to uh, doing drills that are like pitching – but not exactly pitching. And honestly, I know, Brent, you're an expert, and um, a full training program has a lot of concepts such as periodization. You should have different things in-season and off-season, and and also um, a variation where you're putting different loads on your body, doing different things, uh, and working different parts of your body. So so those are some of the concepts. And I think weighted balls and long toss, they can be used in a program like that, and they could also not be used. So I don't think there's one magic ticket, but I think overdoing anything and seeing a velocity go up and seeing your shoulder rotation go up, I think that's artificial if you do it too much. And uh, just like if you were to throw 100 full effort pitches every day, seven days a week, that would be too much of doing one thing. And there has to be some uh, common sense from the uh, strength specialist. No, I'm I, I'm very much agree with all that and I, I believe I mean I believe there's core principles in all of this I believe there's core principles in the kinetic chain that we need to follow I believe hit to shoulder separation helps us reduce a lot of stress to the arm and gives us time to apply more energy from the lower extremities um, I believe getting a more linear trunk to the target helps drive more kinetic energy to the ball and doesn't you know prevent you from dragging your arms or having to overuse your arm um, I believe in any modality used in training, throwing or, or, or loading the, the throw, it needs to be done in, in a, a range of stress. You know, I, I think y'all have done enough studies to show, for example, long toss. When you exceed 120 feet, you're at the same amount of torques on your arm as you are at 60 feet on the mound. And then if we look at weighted balls, you know, I, I do have some questions there, but torques do go down with the heavier weight. But is that 
a difference in torques, more torques over time as opposed to peak torques. But the point is, I believe there's the core principle in any training modality for throwing should be there's there's a range. There's a range of stress we have to stay in. Also, too, in longevity, like you guys have proven that you throw more than eight months out of the year. You're five times more likely to have injuries. So it's saying, yeah, throw, but don't throw more than eight months out of the year. I think, don't you think there's core principles here that would really keep a lot of kids safe in, in, in their training uh, by following this from the kinetic chain all the way into their 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 training volume? I, th I think you said it exactly well. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you that there's a modalities and you want to have a, th a training and a throwing program and has to all be well thought out. And you have to be very cautious about any exercise that's actually more stressful than regular pitching. Um, and again, some of the uh, flat ground, run and gun type weighted ball things um, might be more stressful. So you have to be very cautious about, you know, it's enough stress during pitching. So looking at a whole program and putting the different parts together, um, you want enough where you're building up strength and maintaining strength, but you don't want um, you, you don't want to overdo it. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Perfect. So I think we've defined that really well. Thank you. It, let's talk about how is doing is baseball getting this information because I think just in these almost an hour of time we've sat here, you've put out uh, just some critical information that that every parent and player should be studying do you think this information is getting out to to the community of baseball actually i'm, I'm very excited about where we're at right now um 30 years ago i was just some uh oddball nerd doing this you know <laughs> me dr andrews and i and and then you know then it started to get some a lot of play and understanding real quickly by doctors and physicians uh, physicians physical therapists other medical professionals but uh, it was slow to be um, embraced by uh, coaches and by teams. But I'm really excited where we're at right now. Um, first of all, there's professional baseball and there's amateur baseball. And I do think in both cases, today's uh, instructor and coach has a lot more information and education of what proper mechanics are uh, instead of this is how I did it. I mean, just our technology and, our, and publications from places like ASMI there's a lot of more information out there. Interestingly, in, in Major League Baseball and professional baseball, uh, I'm very excited that uh, there's a new embracing of, of biomechanics in baseball. I think it started with, uh, with Moneyball and Billy Bean and all that stuff where um, science started to come into baseball. That was more about batting averages and on-base percentages and, and mathematical, not physical. But then... Um, but then the, uh, this, the TrackMan, StatCast, all this stuff where they're actually tracking where the balls move nowadays, um, all of a sudden people running the pro teams were getting more numbers than the, they knew what to do with. And, and um, so there's a new type of people working with baseball teams, analytics, who are looking at statistics but also looking at some on-field measurements. And I, I am happy to say that more and more teams – are now using uh, biomechanics for analyzing full pitching mechanics. It, we're still in a situation where a lot of teams, organizations, send their major or minor league players to me, to ASMI, uh, and we're, we're happy to help them and analyze them. And um, But uh, I'm really happy to see that teams are in-house starting to uh, uh, have their own team of people trying to understand that. So it's very exciting. In amateur baseball, 
uh, sometimes amateur baseball has to follow professional baseball due to the, due to the, the dollars. They have right. more access, obviously, the, the pros. But amateur baseball, there's uh, technology is trickling down, and some of it's out there. For instance, there's this thing called the modus elbow sleeve, mm-hmm. sleeve which I – I was involved when, when they helped develop that. And that's a company uh, uh, in New York uh, where you have this sleeve and it measures some biomechanics of your elbow when you throw. I mean, I, I think, and then you can see how much force you're putting on your elbow and other measurements. And I think some of this trickling down. So, uh, Brent, we're not there, but I'm really excited about how science is being uh, becoming value, uh, accessible to baseball and baseball is trying to figure it out. Well, I think you were saying it with, you know, with, with the movement, uh, uh or the, how saber metrics has changed the game. I I've said it biometrics is going to be the next revolution. I'm, I'm hoping it's happening. So would you say that you think that's what's happening now? We're going to have, uh, I, I, I've said that also. Yeah. I, I said, uh, this is essentially the new money ball to me. The first one again was how, uh, statistics is more important than, uh, other things that uh, there's some value there uh and then i think the next thing is measurements about your human body measurements of your on-field motions i think that team i think people are realizing this is the next front yes. yeah i mean because i can see it where if and i've always said they if they could do something like a combine not to say they have to but if, if they did something with the combine to where they're measuring all the biometrics of these athletes prospects or current players then they yeah. can run a database and re- correlate them to other great players so if they have a young prospect they could say he has the same biomechanics of this great mlb player who had you know 20 years in the league or something and then they could also use it for injury like you wouldn't you you should never put a a, a pitcher back on the field if his biomechanics aren't the same as they were before or ultimately better don't you think that once they start doing this all of a sudden their injury rates are going to go down i think so i mean i hope so (laughs) that's what i'm working (laughs) on and uh and uh, it, it's getting there. It's getting teams are using it, and uh, ultimately, I do see biomechanics making it onto the field during competition, just like that. Uh, pitch tracking is is happening during games. I do see the future because I'm aware of some of the technologies uh, that are trying to get to the point where you could be uh, measuring and say, uh oh, uh oh, his stride length has shortened, or yeah. uh oh, he's dropping his elbow. This is things pitching coaches are looking for right now, but. Um, I do see a time in the future when uh when there'll be that such as that data. I mean the first thing that came about uh you know decades ago is that uh, teams were able to see when their pitchers had less accuracy, more less control and they were walking people and they were able to look up on the scoreboard and see that his velocity is going down, his pitch velocity. Um I do anticipate that they'll have more data besides pitch velocity. They'll have access in the in the dugout to uh, other things such as his biomechanical changes. I mean, they should be able to predict injury one day. Would you say yes or no? I, I think so. I think we've we've shown that. Um, I think it's here now. Uh, uh, we've shown plenty of studies that you have these types of mechanics, you have this type of risk of injury, you have these types of mechanics, you have this type of risk of injury. I do want to point out that your mechanics are one aspect of your risk of injury. Right. Another big aspect is how much you pitch and how much you rest. Right. Other other aspects are your strength conditioning and your, your nutrition as well. But um, all other things being equal, uh, we've shown 
that uh, pitchers with certain mechanics have more injuries than pitchers with other types of mechanics. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think we're slightly behind when it comes to like uh, play, player development than something like football. Like football is now doing these recovery rooms and like the, I read this article with the Redskins and how they have like these uh, floating chambers and these uh, these beds like the, where they go in and sleep and. So, I mean, I, I think there's – it's just seeing what football's doing. It just shows how baseball – there's so much more baseball could do to really keep these athletes healthy that, I, I, like you said, I hope they're catching up. But I think that there's so much more they could apply, don't you think? There, there is, and some of that is happening, whether whether it's uh, sleep or nutrition. Or, there, there are people in professional baseball working on, on all competitive advantages and health things. So it's, it's there. All right. It's behind the scenes right now. Last real quick one, because I know people are excited about this, because I have my opinion on it, obviously. You're, so you're saying we've capped out on velocity. Is that true? Uh, I've capped out on my velocity. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, uh, I've said this before. I've said this decades ago, actually, and, and I'm, I'm actually kind of proud of uh, that I was right, right in my prediction. But um, 20 years ago, people were asking me, uh, you know, we had someone pitching 100 miles per hour 20 years ago, and another guy um, uh, is going to go up to 110, 120. And I said, no, based on all these things we've spoken about today, um, the well, you can make your your mechanics better, and maybe you could train your muscles to be better. But the weak link that is the ligaments and the tendons holding the joints, the elbow and shoulder together in particular. And right now, the ligament, the elbow and ligament Elbow and shoulder ligament and tendons are at their maximum right now, pitching 100-ish miles per hour. Um, even with proper conditioning and proper training and proper body size. So I, I don't see how a body, an elbow and shoulder, could take more velocity. You can't beef up your ligament, your elbow and shoulder. Um, uh, I do see, as I said for years, I see more people kind of figuring it out and getting to this maximum. And that's exactly what we're seeing, that the, the today's best velocity and 10 years ago and 20 years ago are not that different, but the average velocity continues to rise because more guys are it's getting more crowded near the top. And it makes perfect sense. But he, here's my theory of how it goes up. Tell me if I'm wrong. The athletes get bigger. So what if we get a seven-footer who moves like, you know, a, a hundred, like Chapman, you know, and yeah. w wouldn't that do it? So, because he has bigger joints, bigger ligaments, wouldn't that again, do it? Again, if it's, ju if it's just mechanics, it could do it. But if it is biomechanics, it cannot do it because the elbow ligaments and tendons of the seven-footer compared to the six-footer, uh, we don't have any data to say their ligaments are proportionally bigger and stronger. But if, so, but if more Aaron so judges show up, that, that it won't change the game? I think you could hit the ball farther. I think you could run faster, but uh, but uh, base runners and batters are not filling up the surgery room right now. Okay, and so uh, the the body is not at its functional limit for those other things, but it is at its functional limit for throwing, as we can see by the number of people on the injured list and uh, even at the high school is getting injured. So unfortunately, or fortunately, I think. We will not get higher velocity because the, this is all the ligaments of the elbow and shoulder can take. Um, I don't know any way around that. No, I would and, definitely uh, agree. I was just wondering and, if there's a, 
uh, a prodigy that could break that that mold. You know, there all, there always could be one guy. Yeah. I mean, how did how did Nolan Ryan pitch right, exactly. 100 miles per hour for 25 years in the 1980s? I mean, you know, but uh, but uh, we you know in science we study the population, not right exactly, not the, not uh, the, out, the outlier. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I do want to say as we wrap up that we have a lot of this information that you've been referring to our publications and proper biomechanics on our ASMI website, asmi.org, including, um, you know, we, we analyze a lot of pro players, but also um, your listeners, whether they're an instructor or a dad or mom, um, we analyze one-on-one the same way we analyze high school and college pitchers. And then even you, Brent, if, if you send someone to our lab, the results are not worth anything unless someone does something with it. So the most successful use of biomechanics is if you have a, a, a private instructor or a team instructor who knows what to do with these results. Sometimes you analyze a, a picture at ASMI or elsewhere, and uh, we say you need to change your arm path. And that's good, and mom and dad smile, but if they don't know how to do it, they need someone to do it with them. Or sometimes we say uh, your problem is you don't have enough tr- trunk flexibility or leg strength or something. And so in that case is the... The uh, thing to do is to work with a, a fitness strength coach, um, someone to work on the physical attributes versus the technique. So anyway, I just want to say no, all this stuff we're talking about, about how we analyze pro pitchers, this is also being done trying to help individuals. No, I love it. I've actually I've worked with a lot of y'all's analytics. Uh, I've had many parents, players come down and, and show me all of your data and, and it's extremely helpful and, and I actually love to work with it. It's a lot of fun. So I, I love hearing those stories. I love yeah, that. Yeah. So I'm going to say it right now, anyone out there that would like to go to ASMI and be put through uh, all their advanced technology and analyzed, I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, what, how else, what are other things that you could send them to? I know, are you, y'all do a lot with pitch smart, right? Yes. Thank you. I, uh, you just, you just asked and answered my question. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, if you got to go, to, if you could go to one website on the internet, I would go to PitchSmart.org. This is a website that uh, that was set up by Major League Baseball in conjunction with USA Baseball, based on a lot of the leading research and science and medicine, and it is uh, it is the most important website I know of for trying to help people succeed in baseball, especially pitchers. And, and stay healthy. It has information about uh, scientific, scientifically proven pitch count limits and also things such as what is a Tommy John surgery and things like that. So pitchsmart.org. And if we have any young aspiring biomechanics or, or biomechanists, what, what, um, where would you send them to start their education? Yeah, so interestingly, last about a month ago was National Biomechanics Day. Awesome. <laughs> and it's a, a, a thing uh, our the American Society of Biomechanics started about five years ago because for this very reason. I told you a story about an hour ago about how I um, started finding the career of biomechanics or defining it. It didn't really exist. But now people still don't know enough about it, whether it's students or, or adults. So I would look up National Biomechanics Day. And there's um, some videos uh, from us and others who have – there's actually one on our ASMI website. But National Biomechanics Day, it shows what biomechanics is, whether it's in baseball or elsewhere, and 
what and it kind of in high school these days there are some sports medicine classes and we're just trying to make high school students more aware of biomechanics as a possible career in college exciting oh well this was a real honor doctor i i'm so grateful that we got to do this thank you for all this time and wonderful information and any last words no, I really enjoyed this, Brent. Yeah, it was a good conversation. I enjoyed, uh, you know what you're talking about. And uh, uh, I think that's the whole trick. We have scientists like me, but it's really not worth much if you don't have people like you who are applying it. Uh, and that's, that's, I don't want science to go on a bookshelf. I want it to help your listeners, whether they're, it's a pitching coach or, or a pitcher. So, yeah, uh, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ended right now, so hold on the line.